Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Unbashful. I, of course, am your host, Nicholas Doucette, and I want to thank you for stopping by for another week. It's been quite a while since I've done an episode here on the show. I've been very busy, and part of it has a lot to do with the title of this podcast, which is Acting School. So that's that's primarily what we're going to be talking about in today's episode, along with some other things, Christopher Nolan, the rumors of him directing uh, the next two Bond films, and I'm going to give my thoughts on Loki Season 2. But we're going to begin today with a little bit of the things that have been going on in my life, a little bit different here than the usual programming of movies and television and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, <clears throat> let's let's start with acting school. And uh, the title of the, of the podcast, I don't, I'm, I'm not too sure what it's going to be yet, but it's probably going to be something along the lines of most terrifying decision I've ever made in my life. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't consider that an exaggeration. I would probably say that's true. For a lot of you, you might shake your head or laugh and think that's ridiculous. There are people making decisions regarding life and death every day. There's a war going, there's multiple wars going on. You know, your, your, your decision pales in comparison. Sure. Fine. But we're not going to go that deep that far. I'm just going to discuss my life, my 23 years of existence, the things that have led me to this moment where I am. And compared to all the previous decisions, excuse me, I've had to make, this is by far the one that required the most consideration, the one that the one that was the most terrifying at the end of the day. Um, and that is acting school. And I've, if you've visited my podcast before, I've talked about my... I obviously love movies, but I've, I've talked about how much I want to be an actor. And we all know acting um, professionally is quite hard. And it's uh, the odds are definitely stacked against you. And I believe that if you are brave enough and you are um, <clears throat> stupid enough, I think that if you are going to pursue this career, you are, you are doing yourself a disservice if you don't put all your eggs in one basket. Personally, that's how I feel. And it's because of how hard it is to quote-unquote make it in this industry. However you define make it. Everybody has their own standards for the success of an actor. You know, a lot of people, they associate success with, well, you're sharing the screen with, you know, Joaquin Phoenix or Leonardo DiCaprio, or you're in a big blockbuster film. That is success. I define success as an actor a little bit different. That that's obviously like the, to accomplish and reach those heights. Like that's obviously like every, everybody would love to do that. But for me, I define success as an actor as you're telling stories and you are sharing performances that people and audiences can relate to, that audiences find convincing, um, and that audiences would like to see again. That is how I define success. And then on the financial side, 
If you're able to support yourself, if you're, if you're able to provide for yourself or if you have a family, if you can provide for them, I consider that success. Now, going back to the to the beginning with Robert De Niro and DiCaprio, sure, living in a massive estate with, you know, security guards everywhere and, you know, food, you have professional chefs serving, like, obviously, that everybody would love that. But if you're able to live in a nice, uh, welcoming home or apartment, whatever, condo, and you're able to support yourself from an economic perspective, I consider that success as well. And there's varying degrees of that. So that's how I define success as an actor. Um, and if you want to accomplish that... I believe you are already selling yourself short if you're either A, planning, creating a backup plan in the event that you don't succeed or you don't commit yourself 100% because it is such a competitive industry and there are people every day giving it their, giving it their all, giving it everything, sacrificing everything to even get a chance or an inkling at I'm making some kind of footprint or impact in this industry. So how do you do that? How do you commit yourself 100%? Well, there's lots of ways. You can read acting books, you can attend classes, you can you can you know uh, you can you can go to workshops or you can go to school. The thing about acting and not even just acting but filmmaking, screenwriting, there is not there's not a traditional avenue to approach it. You want to be a doctor, you go to med school. You want to be a firefighter, you want to be a police officer. There are distinct pathways that one must go through to accomplish those uh, occupate to to make it in those occupations. For acting, there is no one way to approach it, which is kind of scary, but also kind of um, how do I put this? It's, it's scary because it's overwhelming because you're asking yourself, how should I do this? But at the same time, you have so much options. So you, 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 can, you can really take the time to think about it. So it's, it's kind of like a, a blessing and a curse, I guess. And we've seen you know, famous actors and actresses, they've made it in all kinds of different ways. There's, there's always the actor that packed up his his minivan and voyaged to Los Angeles with whatever 150 bucks in a in a case of beer in his back seat. We've all heard that story before. Then there's the actor that um got lucky and didn't even plan on being an actor. We've seen that with Matthew McConaughey. I think his story was sort of along the lines of kind of right place right time, which is a common theme with a lot of these stories. And then we've seen the the third option, uh, where you know this this actor wanted to be an actor their whole life, and they went to school, and they went to Yale, or they went to uh, Juilliard, these famous uh, institutions that that have that have been regarded as the best in the world, and uh, we, we've seen actors go through that process of conservatory programs and theater and everything like that, and they've made, had success too. So. The point is, is like there, there is no one right way to do it. There's the way that you 
believe is best for you. And after years, and I quite literally mean years of being on the fence of, should I go to acting school? Should I not? Like I've been considering this probably since 2020 when the world shut down and I had all this time with me and my brain and my thoughts asking myself, what should I do with my life? Who am I? Those, you know, deep (laughs) existential discussions you have yourself that I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with. I've been considering going to acting school since then. So like three years, almost four years, essentially. And I've, I've bounced back and forth for a while. I told myself, I'm not going to do this. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. I'll just, you know, there's, there's endless amount of resources out there to inform myself. But then I talked to other people and then, then I flipped and then I said, okay, well, I am going to go to acting school. And then eventually I flipped again. I said, I'm not going to go to acting school. So it's been this, like this chaotic push and pull with myself of figuring out, is this what I want to do? Should I do this? Should I not do this? If I don't do this, could I do it this way? Could I do it? It's, it's chaotic. The amount of like thought I've had with my brain, it's, it's been overwhelming. But finally, I made the decision probably in the summer to finally bite the bullet and say, this is what is best for me. Why and how did I reach this decision? The last couple of years, as I mentioned just now, I told myself I'm not going to go to acting school. So I tried to take the entrepreneurial route of acting, meaning like just educating myself, doing it on my own, and, uh, and, and this, that, and the other. Practicing monologues, obviously watching the, the great performances of, of our generation going that direction. And I've definitely learned a lot from that. But at the end of the day, I arrived at, at the conclusion that reading acting books on, you know, Meisner and uh, Chekhov, I have them beside me. I've read, I've read Michael Caine's book called Acting in Film. And this isn't me like trying to give some flex or, or, or whatever, because listen to what I'm about to say. I've read Harold Guskin's How to Stop Acting. Same for Meisner's book on acting. Chekhov's and uh, Michael Caine's. And I realized after reading all of those, definitely some helpful lessons and tools, but they're really, they really didn't help me. And the reason why is because I'm in my bedroom and there's nobody here to, there's nobody here beyond myself to really tell me like and coach me and push me and challenge me as an actor. And also that like I can practice monologues, but as an actor, you got to be able to work with other people. And part of acting is reacting to what the other actor in your scene is saying to you. And when you don't have that, it's very hard to build that skill. Otherwise you're just doing endless monologues. So don't get me wrong. That has worked for a lot of actors, but for me, I've come to the conclusion that I feel I need to be in in an environment where I'm working every day toward the craft. I'm being pushed and challenged by professors, by teachers that have that experience and that have that wisdom to instill in me. And then on top of that, being in an environment every day where I'm working with other aspiring actors and we can 
We can learn with each other. We can, and we can get better together. So that's ultimately where I landed and where I kind of realized that I think that this is the best decision for me. I'm not entirely certain on that decision. And I don't know, I don't know if I will be until I'm done. I still have doubts and I still have uh, those existential discussions. And I'll talk about that in a bit. But I felt comfortable enough to say, okay, I think I'm going to take a shot at this. I think I'm going to bet on myself. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing. And uh, I, I applied to many schools. I live in Canada, so there is no, there's no Juilliard here. Uh, and I wasn't willing to, first of all, I don't even know if I'm good enough to go to Juilliard. That's, that's number one. But number two, I don't even, I don't think I'm willing to, to gamble that much money on going to acting school by going to Juilliard because, so I, I basically talked about the, the personal, uh, discussion I've in, in, in the conflicting arguments back and forth of why I wanted to go to acting school. But then there's the financial side. Obviously we can't like pretend that doesn't exist. It, it's, it's, it's like going, it's like going to any other college or university. You are, you're, you're good, probably going to be in debt. Um, you're, you're, you're putting a lot on the line. You're putting your time on the line and, uh, it's no different here. Now I'm going to a college that teaches acting. I'm not going to a university. So the disparity in cost is huge. So like, I'll just give you an example. Um, the average cost of going for, for, uh, for an undergrad here in Canada for a bachelor's program, at least in the arts, you're looking at probably around, I want to say here, here, let me give you an example. Let me, let me, another example. That's better. I initially was interested in going to Toronto film school, which I, I guess would, would be considered like the Juilliard of, of Toronto, so to speak. Feel free to disagree. The cost of going to that school is probably close to 40, 30, 40 grand, uh, I'd say for 30, 40 grand for the whole like four years to me, I wasn't willing to pay that much or put myself in that deep of a hole. I'm willing to put myself in a hole and I'm willing to, you know, commit and, and, you know, bet on some money for myself and, and, and put myself in a formal acting education. That's just a little too much for me personally. Uh, but we all, we all make our own decisions. So if you are in that, if you're listening to this and like, let's say you are in Toronto film school right now, this is not a knock against you. I'm sure, I'm sure you thought about it carefully and I'm sure you came to the realization that this makes sense for you. It just, it just doesn't make sense for me personally. So then I looked at colleges. I looked at, uh, what are, what did I looked at Seneca? I looked at, um, Sheridan college. I looked at, what was the other one I looked at? Fuck. Um, I can't remember the name. It was someplace in Oakville. Humber. Humber College. Oakville. Uh, and then I looked at George Brown, which is where I'm, which is where I eventually landed on. And uh, financially, it's 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 about two, two grand and some change a year. It's a two-year program. So when it's all said and done, it'll be just shy of 10 grand. And you know what? That is a lot more reasonable for me than 40 grand. (laughs) 
that and and like I said, that's not a knock on if you if you're in that program or if you're paying that much money. I'm happy for you. It just doesn't make sense for me. But ten grand, that's a lot more uh, digestible and reasonable for me. That's just that's obviously just the financial side of it. There's a lot more consider. It's honestly not even the most important thing, but it is it is important. Uh, and then there was the audition process, and I was I was kind of surprised at first, but I guess I shouldn't have been. That yes, you have to audition for for this program. It's not a it's not a traditional college. Like for example, I my last I went to college for marketing, waste of fucking time. But you just apply, and if you have the grades, you get in. It's like any other school. Uh, but acting, I I should have realized that you have to audition. And let me tell you, I prepped. I prepped very hard for that, and I treated it like it was an audition for like a film or, or a TV show. I, I gave my all. Now, whether I did good enough, I mean, I made the program, so I think that speaks for itself, uh, and, and it worked out. I went in for the audition, and I left that day feeling, feeling even more confident and more assured in this, in this route, and it was after meeting the program coordinators, it was after meeting my soon-to-be teachers, when I spoke to them, I could tell that they, well, obviously, they take the craft and they take the art seriously. This is what they have given their life to. And it's, 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 it's nice to be around that because it's hard to talk about acting with other people. You know, you, I tell people I want to be an actor, and I immediately see the the shift in their expression. They're, I could see what they're thinking. Ah, oh, this fucking guy, another actor. You know, oh, good luck. You know, you're gonna be homeless. Whatever. Like that's, I can see that. I can see that condescending shift in their in their eyes and their expression. They don't have to say anything. I can just see it. So it's hard to talk about acting with people because a lot of people don't take it serious, but they do, and that to me really um, encouraged me and it really made me decide like I would love to be around these people every day and, and and I told them they so there was the audition and then there was a interview process afterwards if you if you made it through the audition so they would tell you the same day everybody would go in one by one you'd sit down then after everybody did their audition the uh, the head co- the program coordinator um, just for respect of her privacy, I'm not going to name. I'm not going to name any names in in this podcast. But our program coordinator, she came out and uh, she listed who, uh, excuse me, who, um, who made it and uh, who didn't. Um, and then for those who made it, there was one final uh, process that you had to go through before um, fully being sworn in, I, I guess. And it was an interview, and the teachers asked you. Why do you want to be an actor? What does it mean to be an actor? You know, what, what drew what drawn drew you into George Brown and so on and so forth. And uh, after that interview, I left feeling very assured and confident that this is the right direction for me to go in. So, yeah, and, and to be honest, when it comes to my other classmates, I didn't really talk to them at all uh, in that audition process because in. The, the mindset that I'm in is, I'm not going to lie, I am competitive. I am fighting for a spot in this program. And it doesn't make sense for me to be rubbing elbows with everybody else at the audition when I'm competing for a spot against them. And uh, I mean, that's just true of the 
industry in general, you're going to be going through rounds and rounds of auditions. It doesn't make sense for you to try and, you know, make friends and, and talk about the ball game when you two are, are, are here for one reason. And that's to, that's to get the part. And that's, it's no different for this program. There's a limited amount of spots. Uh, it's a highly regarded school too. There's, I've seen lots of articles and I've done lots of research and George Brown always lands within the top 10 of schools in Canada, at least I'm sure there's obviously, you know, other schools in, in the United States and Los Angeles that would probably rank higher or lower, whatever. Uh, so yeah, I was, I was very competitive. I was very to myself. I wasn't really talking to other people. Uh, I was, I was just in my zone. I was in, you know, I was, I was like Kobe fucking Brian, you know, when that clip of Chris Rock is when he's trying to talk to him, Kobe on the bench, Kobe's just zoning him out. He's not even acknowledging. That's kind of like the mindset that I was in. Um, so to the people there, they might've thought I was an asshole. They might've thought I, I look like a dick, whatever. That's, that's just, that was just my process. And I mean, I, it, it worked. I, I made it in the program. So I think that says something. Um, but now that I'm in the program, that attitude has changed because I've, I've earned my spot just like, every, just like all the other people that are in their spot in my program. So now I'm not in a competitive uh, mindset. I'm not competing against other people because now the goal is just getting better as an actor. So now I now I'm working with these people. I, I'm I'm we're, we're working with each other every day. So it doesn't make sense for for me to to feel uh, to try and compete with them. And I was hoping that everybody else would adopt that same uh, attitude. I, I was I was hoping that nobody was going to come in here and try and flex their acting muscles because at the end of the day, if you're trying to do that, why even attend the program? Because if you're already that confident and assured in your acting ability, well, then there's no point of trying to go to an acting school where you're going to be in an environment where everybody is just trying to get better and everybody is in process. But thankfully, nobody is like that. And uh, I guess that, that's going to transition us here to, to, to the program itself. I'm going to talk about uh, what my usual day-to-day -day looks like and uh, the people, the classes, etc. So let's talk. Let's talk about my classmates. I'm sure. Some, I'm, I'm sure not everybody is going to listen to this, but I'm sure a few of my classmates will probably check this out. I, I've talked before about how I have a, a podcast. So um, if you're listening, if you're listening to this, my fellow peers and classmates, hello, hello. And uh, I, what I want to say about them is. I don't think I could have been put together with a better group of people than I could have asked for. Um, everybody is, everybody's amazing. And, and that's truly like, that's the best thing you can ask for going into a program because you don't attend acting school for the diploma that says, I went to acting school. We all know that will not get you a job better than a barista. Let's just keep it a buck. That's what it is. You attend this program to get better at the art form and to network and to meet people and to build connections. That's why you attend acting school. It's not for the piece of paper because we all know that won't get you dick all. And the people are great. My classmates are awesome. There, there is not a single person that I, that I, that I sit back and think, oh, I don't know about them. No, I, I love all of you if you're listening to this, truly. 
and nobody's competitive, nobody is, uh, nobody's a dick, nobody, none of that, and, and, and that really makes it that much more meaningful for me, because there's other elements, like the, the commute to, to my school is a little bit challenging, it's in Toronto, and I don't live right in Toronto, I live kind of outside of the city, and uh, driving doesn't make sense, because I'll be stuck on the Don Valley for you know, two hours, uh, it's probably not good for my, for my car either, so I take the train, and it's a lot, I gotta wake up pretty early, but I, I'm willing to make that commitment for this program, and for my classmates, so I could tell, so I could show them that they can depend on me, um, but yeah, the, my classmates are great, everybody is, everybody, we all have the same attitude, we are here to get better, nobody is trying to step on, on each other's toes, so that's awesome, uh, my teachers, my teachers are great. Uh, they're, they're, they're encouraging, they're motivating and they're honest. They're, they're, they're willing to point things out, coach us. And that's exactly what I want. I don't want to be in a program where I'm not challenged because at the end of the day, that's why I'm attending. I'm glad that I'm friends with my classmates and I'm glad that we're, we all see eye to eye but that's not why I took this program. I took this program because I want to become a better actor and I want to be pushed and challenged beyond what I think are my limits. And my teachers, for the most part, do that very well. I'm trying to think about what else here to kind of go over. Hmm. Okay, yeah, and in terms, so what does like a, a normal day look like for for acting school? What what classes do I have? So I have classes like speech. I have a class called Basics of Acting. I have um, I have a, a class called Mise en Scène, which is more of a filmmaker's class than an acting class, but it doesn't form you as an actor. It forms you on storytelling storytelling techniques and things like that. Uh, so I have speech, Basics of Acting. I have movement, which is very important. That I have. Um, improvisation so those are the and then i have another class but it's a communications class that you're required to take so that doesn't really have anything to do with any of this and uh, they're all different all the classes ask ask for something different out of you and uh the thing about acting is a lot of people don't understand that they're it's very hard and we see the greats do it and like any like any person that is a master of their of their craft, of their occupation, they make us think it's easy, but it isn't. It's very, very difficult. And each of these classes breaks down, like I said, you have speech, so it breaks down how how does your vo- how do you use your voice? How does the thoughts and the feelings of your body, your breathing, how does that inform your voice? Then you have the basics of acting, right? That kind of it's quite literally the basics of acting. Then you have improvisation. How do you keep on your toes? How do you how do you how do you keep pushing forward in a scene where you might prep for a scene and you might think it's going to go in this way, but then the other actor in the scene, they kind of throw the script out the window and they take it in a completely different way. How do you continue forward from that? And then you have movement, right? How to use your body, how to use this instrument, how to, how to keep it free and flowing and, and keep it from restricting yourself. So, yeah, I mean, and then mise-en-scene, I, I actually really do like that class. Um, like, 
obviously I'm an actor and uh, acting is, is what I love, but if I'm lucky enough to make a career in this industry, I also would, would, wouldn't be opposed to directing or to screenwriting. So that class kind of goes into the history of some of the films that we all love, like Fincher and, and, and Nolan, and, and it goes into um, very old films, like films from the 1920s, German cinema, Citizen Kane, all that stuff. So that's kind of what a, what a normal day looks like uh, for me. Um, and some of the other benefits of specifically go- taking this program at this school, George Brown, compared to other schools, is that at the end of it, you get your you're a union actor, first and foremost, which is huge. If you don't know what that means, uh, being a part of a union, it's like any it's like any union. You're you're guaranteed uh, a certain wage, a minimum. You're guaranteed a minimum amount of money you're going to make. Um, they, they essentially, uh, you know what a union is. It's it's like a they they have certain rights that you're entitled to. And if you're an actor and you're not part of a union, you're not guaranteed a specific rate of pay. You're not guaranteed lunch breaks. You're not guaranteed there there's it's 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 not good. If you if you really want to take acting serious, you do want to try and become a union actor and I mean look we're seeing right now the SAG after that's like the main union in the United States, they're they're striking right now and I stand in solidarity with them and uh hopefully they can get that sorted out sooner than later and and I think they probably will now that the writer strike is in the rear view because the writers and the actors they're asking for similar similar things they're they're demanding similar uh similar things like you know protection from AI uh rate of pay um you know stuff like that uh but in Canada our our union is Actra so if you want to try and act and make a career in, in whatever sector, film, TV, commercial, you want to try and become a union actor. And I think to qualify for ACTRA, I could be wrong. My the my memory on this is a little bit shady, but I think you have to have three credits to your name and not extra work doesn't count. You know, you have to have three credits with lines as an actor. So you have to have three jobs where you had a line or two and you'll qualify for ACTRA. And that isn't easy, <laughs> first and foremost. Um, so it's, it is a benefit that right out the gate when you're done this program, you are at an apprentice level for ACTRA, which is the union here, the main union here, in, uh, and at least Ontario. It could, could be different in other provinces. So that's good. Then you get professional headshots done. You get a demo reel uh, and then obviously, you know, you get connections and network and, and, and all of my teachers are, uh, working actors, like they work in the industry. So that right there is already a, a, a huge, uh, benefit. Um, cause I would, I wouldn't have known them otherwise. And the thing about headshots and demo reel, that's huge too, because getting those done is quite costly outside of the business, especially a demo reel, because a demo reel is pretty much a highlight reel of you as an actor. And to get that made, you have to find yourself in a position where, first of all, you, you're acting uh, on camera. So you got to get people around you that are willing to do that and help you with that. Or if you're lucky enough, you know, in a commercial or, or something. Um, and what they're going to do in my program is they're, they're going to compile... Uh, scenes of you from scene work and in short films and so on and they're going to compile it in a professionally cut uh, edited demo reel so that that's huge uh, to me that's really one of the reasons that's another one of the many reasons why 
I decided to take this program. And professional headshots as well, very, very important. Uh, you can always tell a professionally shot headshot from an amateur from an amateur headshot from one another. Um, so that, that all those resources are great because when you're out of this program and you're done because it will go by fast, you want to be ready to 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 chase this industry. And having those resources out the gate is definitely going to help. Um, so I think we're almost done the acting school uh, discussion here. But um, I think to conclude, let's actually circle back to the beginning. Let's talk about <clears throat> let's talk about the way I feel about it. And it is making this decision has been the most terrifying process of my entire life. And I'll, I'll keep it real with you. I'm 23 years old. And a lot of you hearing that are probably thinking, wow, you're so young. Yes, I know I'm young. In, in the grand cosmos of it all, I am young. But I've, I've bounced around. I've tried different uh, industries. I've worked different jobs. I was in school for policing. I dropped out of that. It wasn't for me. I took marketing. I did that, but that felt like a waste of time. And I feel like everything has kind of led me here to acting. But when it comes to acting school... You know, I'm committing two years and I'm committing thousands of dollars and I'm already 23. So by the time this program is over and let's, you know, things, things will change. That's just how life is. You might, whatever way or path you think your life is going to go, it's probably not going to go exactly to that way. So things will change for me. Absolutely. But I'm pretty confident that acting is the thing that I want to do, but the, the process of that will, and the pathway will change. So if things don't work out in two years or something significant changes, well, you know, I, I'm going to look back and think, man, I could have done a lot of things different with, with those last two years. And I'm, I'm trying not to think this way, but it is, it is something that you have to consider. I think you'd be somewhat of a fool to not think of your time because time is important. It's one thing we don't have control in. But we have control in how we spend it and, and, and how we, uh, yeah, how, how we spend our time. That's the only thing we have control in. So it's very, you know, our lives are finite. Our, our time is finite. Our energy and bodies and beings is finite. So it's very important you, you carefully decide how you're going to spend that, to spend that energy and that time. And two years is a long time. So it's a huge fucking gamble. And, 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 and that even to this, even to this day, I'm not going to lie to you, even to this day, even on the train rides home and on my way home from school, I still ask myself sometimes, am I making the right decision? And I, I want to be clear. I'm not dropping out. I, I, I truly love, I love my classmates. I love the program, but I, but I get in my head and I, I've always been this way. I'm, I'm an overthinker. I overthink everything the most foreign, the, the most minute foreign thing happens to my body and I immediately panic and think that I'm dying of cancer or, or whatever, something that I'm, I'm a hypochondriac. I'm, I have anxiety, right? Like not, I haven't been clinically diagnosed, but, but I get anxious about things. And I mean, it's good to, it's good to, it's good to think about these things. It's good to be anxious. It's our, it's our bodies trying to, it's our body and our mind trying to protect us in, uh, and, and that's just how we're programmed as human beings from 
all the way back in, you know, the, the caveman days when we had to fight every day for every meal and every, we, we couldn't sleep properly. We were always checking the rear view to make sure we weren't about to get killed and attacked by an animal or, or whatever. <laughs> I'm, I'm going so deep in this shit now. Uh, but yeah, anyways, getting back to to this, it's uh, I, I still, you know, have, have doubts and I still ask myself every day, you know, did I make the right choice? I, I look at people around me, I look at my friends, I look at what they're doing and um, it's it's not good to compare, obviously, but you see people that you went to high school with, they're getting married, they're having kids, they're having a family and you, sometimes it, it can make you question, is this the right pathway? Am I falling behind? Am I falling by the wayside? Am I going to be one of these people that lives in the same town their entire life? These are questions I ask myself almost every day, especially as an actor. And I expect to continue to ask myself these questions and I expect to have, to continuously have these doubts, but I am, I accept that. There's no sense in me trying to fight it because I think even the best actors in the world, even the actors that live in these you know, million dollar mansions, I'm sure they even ask themselves these questions because it's, 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 a. you never have a steady gig. You never have a steady job. Even if you're working on a tentpole film and, and you're only shooting for three to four months and then you're done. And then what's next? You know, it's always the next thing as an actor. It's, it's very much a rat race. You're constantly looking, you're constantly searching. You're only as good as your last project. I, I hate to say it, but it's kind of the way it is. So, even the best actors in the world are always going to ask themselves these questions, are always going to have doubts and, and insecurities. It's just us as human beings. Anybody that says that I'm not insecure, I'm not, especially actors, any actor that says, you know, I'm, I don't have these uh, discussions, they're, they're lying to you. They're, they're bullshitting. And that, ins- that right there is a projection of their insecurity. It's them trying to appear like they're, stone cold it's it's okay to to feel this way it's okay to think this way as actors so i'm i accept that i'm going to continually have these doubts but i'm going to try and build a relationship where we can coexist together and i can even try and use it for a positive uh outcome you know so to speak all right that was a lot that was a lot out of me that 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 was uh, quite the discussion. Um, I think we're going to table the acting school talk here. And now let's transition to some film and some television discussion. We're going to talk about Christopher Nolan. That's the next thing we're going to go over. And uh, let's just jump right into it. So yes, I'm sure many of you have heard the rumors, uh, not even just recently, for years. I think we've all expected at some point or another in Christopher Nolan's career, he would direct a James Bond film. The the homage and the inspiration is just apparent in so many of his projects. And he's even talked about that before. I think he, in during the press for Oppenheimer, he said that said something along the lines of it's embarrassing the amount of influence those films have had on mine. And there's so many you can draw to obviously tenet, uh, inception, um, even, I wouldn't really say Oppenheimer, uh, even even maybe the dark night not not really pretty it's pretty much just tenet 
and Inception because those films deal with you know espionage and, and and even the characters kind of resemble certain qualities of Bond. But uh, but yeah, so during the press junkets for Oppenheimer, um, I think it was on Happy, Sad, Confuse with Josh Horowitz. He I think he said he he bet his friend twenty dollars at the next film that Christopher Nolan will direct will be James Bond. Or I think he said Christopher Nolan will be the next director to take on James Bond. And, you know, Nolan laughed and he, he, he blushed and he said, you know, it'd be a privilege. But then he talked about, he almost gave in this interview his conditions for what he would need in order to direct it. He said it would be an absolute privilege, but he more or less said, like, I would need creative control because he would be stepping back into an IP, an existing franchise, uh, and, and it wouldn't be his original, it would have to be as close to his original vision as possible. Otherwise... Why would he do it? And I agree. I think Christopher Nolan has earned that right uh, and earned that goodwill, especially, I mean, with obviously Oppenheimer, it's probably going to cross a billion dollars. I mean, you're, you're listening to one of the biggest known fanboys there is. And I can't even honestly say I expected the film financially speaking to be this successful. I, I just, I didn't see it coming. Uh, it's, I think it's just crossed like 940. And I, I do think it's on its it's on its last couple of weeks of its theatrical release. You can't see the film in IMAX anymore. Like you can't see it in seventy millimeter. But you, I don't, I don't even think you can even see it in the digital IMAX. Uh, at least here in Canada, now it's just like the standard, you know, uh, digital projection with without the IMAX in the film format. And I think that's on its last couple of weeks, if not its last week. So it's it's a it's quickly approaching its um, home home video release now. So I'm sure that I actually think Oppenheimer is going to do very very well on streaming. It, it was distributed by Universal. So what is their what's what's their streaming service if if they even have one? I think it's Peacock actually. I think Peacock is their platform. So. Peacock is going to get a boom in subscribers, I'm sure, once Oppenheimer comes on there. But I'm sure they'll probably work out some deal that it can be on you know, Prime or Netflix or something. Who knows? Um, so I, I think that film is going to perform very, very well uh, in, in, in on home screens and whatnot. But right now, as it currently stands, no one doesn't have anything, at least that we know of, in his in his schedule, in his upcoming pipeline. So he's, he's free and he is in a, he is in the perfect position. Now he always was even before Oppenheimer. I know people said tenant, you know, might've spoiled his stock. That's bullshit. I am a tenant apologist. I love tenant. It's certainly not his best film and it's certainly not like in his top three or five, but I still think it's a great film, and upon rewatch for me, it's just gotten better. And I have a friend of mine, uh, Sherrod, him and I, we, we, we share that love for Tenet that not a lot of people um, have. But yeah, so even with Tenet, I, I think he was always in a position, really since probably Batman Begins. I think ever since then, no one has truly been uh, a sought-after director that has the ultimate power in Hollywood to do pretty much whatever he wants. But after Oppenheimer, it is, it's gone to another level, like... I'm sure, I'm sure after the opening weekend, studios from everywhere were, were reaching out to him. You know, direct this film for us, please. We want you. We'll give you all this money and everything like that. Uh, and and I'm not sure what the deals. 
I'm not sure what, what what the details of his universal contract are. I don't know if it's like a four or five picture deal like Jordan Peele has, or if it's just like on you know one film, we'll distribute it for you. We'll give you everything you want, the three hour runtime, the R rating, everything. Um, so I'm not sure if if he's got any more films that he's contractually obligated to for 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 Universal. But I I know that Eon is the producing company. I think they're associated with Amazon. So that means that if he did direct James Bond, it would be an Amazon Prime film, uh, which is crazy to, to think about. But uh, I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen a theatrically released Amazon film. Actually, that's not true. Uh, Air, I think. I think Air was was a was an Amazon Prime film, and I saw that in theaters, and I love Air. God, it feels like it feels like Air came out an eternity ago. This year has just blown by. It's insane. Um, so yeah. Anyways, before I get into more details, I think I'm gonna read this article, and it and it really uh, highlights the rumors that are going on right now and the discussions that are happening behind the scenes with Nolan directing James Bond. So it's the article comes from a website called World of Real. Uh, and their sources are apparently saying that Nolan is being uh, zeroed in on to direct the next two Bond films. So let's read the article here. This comes from Jordan Rumi, and this was published September 7th uh, of this year, obviously. So it says here, quote, A source of mine told me on Tuesday evening that Christopher Nolan is in very serious contention to direct the next James Bond installment. Bond producer, Barbara Broccoli, zeroing in on Nolan. I was told there were discussions with the filmmaker to helm the film, but no deal has been struck just yet, and the strike, not to mention Nolan promoting Oppenheimer, further delayed talks. The main issue right now seems to be the amount of creative freedom Nolan wants for the film, as we talked about earlier. Um, Says here, Broccoli's backups currently seem to be Danny Boyle, Denis Villeneuve, and Paul Greengrass. There were also rumors of Matthew Vaughn being in contention, but my source tells me he hasn't heard his name mentioned at all. Broccoli rarely gives carte blanche to her filmmakers. There's usually a, br- a blueprint in how to make a Bond film, but no one wants to take over the entire process, which is understandable because, you know, he's Christopher Nolan. Exactly. The deal being negotiated were, would be for two Bond films directed by Nolan who would also be writing the script. Still no word yet on who the actor playing Bond would be, but some encouraging signs are pointing towards Aaron Taylor Johnson taking over the role. And I think that's a pretty interesting one because uh, he was obviously intended for for a small role. And Aaron Taylor Johnson has, he's worked in this industry obviously for a while. He did kick ass and other things, but it seems like he's really um, gaining in, in popularity and exposure. He was in Bullet Train. He's going to be Craven the Hunter. As I just mentioned, he was in Tenet. So he's, he's, really kind of having a resurgence, so to speak. But anyways, let's read the rest of the article here. Uh, Back in July, Josh Horowitz, via his Happy Sad Confused podcast, told Nolan that he bet his friend $20, (laughs) that's what we talked about earlier, that he'd be the next director to helm a Bond film. Here's what Nolan said. I love those films. The influence of those films in my filmography is embarrassingly apparent. It would be an amazing privilege to do one. At the same time, where you take on a character like that, you're working with a particular set of constraints. So it's kind of a responsibility I also felt very much when taking on Batman. That's a very good comparison because you could tell he had full creative control. Like you, you, Those are distinctly Nolan's Batman films. They aren't Warner Brothers. They aren't Nolan and Committee. Those are Nolan's films. But anyways, let's read the rest. 
Asked for whether he'd have any say in who would play the next Bond, Nolan says that he'd need to be part of the casting process. You wouldn't want to take on a film without being fully committed with what you bring. It would make sense that after Oppenheimer, Nolan would want his next film to be pure escapist entertainment. Bond would be the obvious choice. As he stated, he's a major fan of the films, especially the Sean Connery ones, and he'd be a perfect fit. A few years ago, we came very close to having Nolan directing Bond. He even admitted to having spoken to Broccoli about the gig. Nolan had been developing the story with Bond writers Purvis and Wade, who were tasked to write the new film with Nolan while Nolan was, fin- was finishing Oppenheimer. Okay, so very, very interesting. So the key takeaway is, I think it's just a matter of time. It might not even be his next film. Maybe the discussions will fall out in the cracks, like it says here toward the end of the article that they did. But I think it's just a matter of time that he will direct the James Bond film. Now, there's something this article didn't point out that I've also heard in other sectors that, you know, on top of the creative control that seems to be an obstacle between the producers and Nolan, another thing that is that is that is an obstacle that they're kind of negotiating over is the setting of the film. So apparently Nolan wants to adapt Ian Fleming's novels, his James Bond novels, that take place in the 1960s and the 1950s. So that's that's where he he wants the film to be a period a period setting, a period piece, so to speak. And he wants them set in the 60s and the 50s. And apparently that is an issue for the producers like, uh, what's her name? Barbara, what was her name? Barbara Broccoli. She, however, wants the film to be a modern day adaptation of James Bond. So that that's where they're, that's where they're conflicting. So he wants it set in the past, whereas the producers, they want it set in modern day in, you know, in, in today's world. And, um, do I think that these, these, uh, conflictions will settle do i believe that they'll meet in the middle they could but i ultimately feel like if no one doesn't get the conditions he's asking for i don't think he's going to do it because i don't think he's the kind of filmmaker that is willing to settle and compromise when he has proven already that if he gets that full creative control he can he can produce magic (laughs) literally so yeah, um, I think it's just a matter of time. I just think we have to wait and see if the producers really, we're going to have to wait and see that they're going to ultimately give in to these demands because it says here, once again in the article, that they've that they've rarely given, it says here, Broccoli rarely gives carte blanche to her filmmakers. There's usually a blueprint on how to make a Bond film. And that's obviously worked. There's been tens and twenties of Bond films and obviously they've, They've been successful. They've de- they've developed a call following. So that blueprint has worked. But I think with Nolan and where he currently is in his career, I think he's he's earned the right. And he's proven that if you give him that amount of responsibility, he will return. Um, financially, critically, in, in all areas. So yeah, uh, I mean, that's pretty much all I, all I can say. Would I, in terms of my thoughts, would I want to see him direct the Bond film? I've said this before. Nolan could direct anything. I will be there opening night. It, he could direct a fucking Peppa Pig film, and I would be there opening night in IMAX 70 millimeter to see the film. It does not matter what he makes. I will be there. Now, Bond, if it feels very much in line with, with some of the other films he's made, as we've talked about, and as he mentioned with the influence, so it would make a lot of sense. Uh, in terms of it, the film being set in the 60s and the 50s, I think that sounds interesting. Personally, I, I'm not a big fan of movies trying to trying to 
set things in modern day. I absolutely cringe when we see these films that try and like, you know, reference TikTok and Instagram and iPhone. I just, I hate that. So, and I don't think he would do that if he did set the film in modern day, but that's just my opinion. Now, when it comes to James Bond, here's something I will admit. Now, I've seen a lot of movies. I've seen most of the the big popular franchises and IPs, but there are a few that I have never seen that I've still yet to watch. Some of those are Lord of the Rings. Never seen Lord of the Rings. Uh, I've I've never seen Star Wars. Now, I I am getting into Star Wars as a matter of fact. My dad grew up loving those films, and him and I we we've made a we've made a agreement that we're gonna meet up. We're going to try to meet up once a week. Sometimes things get in the way, but we're going to try and meet up on the weekends and we're going to watch all the Star Wars films. Not in order because from what I've heard, the prequels are horrible and I am going to watch them, but I'm not going to watch them in a chronological order, meaning like I'm not going to start with The Phantom Menace and then do the films leading up to the original trilogy. So I'm starting with the original trilogy in the 70s and, and the 80s and him and I, about a month ago, we watched A New Hope, and uh, I enjoyed it, and I am looking forward to watching Empire Strike Back, and The Empire Strikes Back, and I've heard everybody say that that's the best one, um, so I'm looking forward to watching that. So, haven't really seen Star Wars, I haven't seen any of the Disney Plus shows, I haven't seen Ahsoka or anything like that, and it kind of sucks because all the content creators I watch... They they also cover Star Wars and I feel like I'm I feel like I FOMO I feel like I'm fear of missing out so uh, and I understand its cultural impact and everything like that on on pop culture so you know I, I don't want to die without having seen Star Wars so I'm checking out Star Wars I will eventually get around to watching Lord of the Rings I know the I know how good those films how good how good everybody says those films are. Um, so yeah, I haven't seen Star Wars, I haven't seen Lord of the Rings, and I, I've never seen a single James Bond film in my entire life, and I tell my friends this all the time, and they think I'm crazy, a lot of them, it's, it's kind of like Mission Impossible, I've, I'm getting into Mission Impossible, I did watch the, the one that came out this year, Dead Reckoning Part 1, and I've seen, uh, what was the one that came before that, I saw that one too, I think it was Rogue Nation, I've seen those two, but it's a franchise, and the fact that I'm watching those films like four or five movies in, I can definitely feel like certain points in the film where I was supposed to understand that that was a reference or that was that was something that was happened in the original film or even to some down to some of the line delivery. Like I can tell that I'm missing something that I should feel. It's like it's like jumping into the MCU for the first time. If you start with some random film, if you start with Captain Marvel, for example, or you start with uh, I don't know, you start with um, like fuck, you start with Age of Ultron. Like you're you're not gonna you're you're you're, you're gonna un, you're gonna tell that there's some things that you're missing here that you're not understanding. So yeah, so James Bond, I I don't like have this uh, affinity for the character because I've never seen any of the films. But if he does, if, if no one does direct this this Bond film, I'm going to go back and I'm going to watch some of the old catalog. Not that it's it's obviously going to be a new adaptation, so it's not going to it's not going to require the previous viewings. But to appreciate the character, I'm going to go back and watch all the old films and all the uh, Daniel Craig films. So I'm sure they're great. It, it's it's not because I 
don't think they're great or I wouldn't like them. I'm sure I would just for whatever reason. I'm sure everybody has those few IPs, those few franchises that they, that they've just never gotten around to, to watch. Just like I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that have never seen any films from the MCU or, or, or never seen Harry Potter. Like those people exist. And I'm one of the people that just have never really seen Star Wars, never seen Bond, never seen Lord of the Rings. And I will get around. There's just only so much time I have. But uh, but yeah, so my thoughts overall, great. If he does this, I'm excited. I think he will do it. I just think it's a matter of time. Now, whether that's his next film or not, I guess we'll have to wait and see if they can get over some of these, uh, if they can meet in the middle or, or if the producers will ultimately just side with Nolan. So yeah, so let's move on to Loki season two, because I got a lot to say about that. So, Loki Season 2 is officially out on Disney+. Plus. The first episode has released. And uh, let's talk about it. Immediate thoughts. I love the episode. It was it was great. The quality felt... It, it felt cinematic. Like, I, I know... Um, I'm pretty sure that the, that the show wasn't shot on film. But it had that film grain to it. Like, it, ha- it had that... It had that cinematic feel. It didn't feel like a TV show. And it picks up right where season one left off. And at the end of season one, it ended on a cliffhanger. Sylvie kills He Who Remains. The multi, the sacred timeline breaks up. The multiverse is going out of control. We see branches happening everywhere. It's pretty much the catalyst to this whole entire multiverse saga. It's, it's the inciting incident, if you will. And uh, Loki... And Sylvie, they kind of fight, they go back and forth over, is he who remains telling the truth, is he a liar, this, that, and the other, and then Loki ultimately kills him, uh, and, uh, which I think he who remains wanted to happen, and, and maybe we'll talk about that uh, later, but, um, and then she boots Loki out, she, they kiss, and she opens, she uses, uh, he who remains temp pad and she kind of knocks him into what I thought was another universe. But what we find out is that she essentially threw him into the past TVA or the beginning, the early stages of the TVA. When I guess the TVA knew who Kang was, they knew that Kang was their benevolent leader and there were the timekeepers weren't a facade at that time. And that's where we find Loki in the beginning of, uh, at the end of season one and the beginning of season two. He's Mobius, Mobius B-15, and they don't know who he is, and this, that, and the other. And then he's now he's time-slipping. And I've seen a lot of theories as to what is this time-slipping. And the the theory I've heard, I was actually just watching a video about this th- uh, from from the Den of Nerds, and he he thinks that the time-slipping is, is a cause of Loki disrupting the flow and... The flow of the sacred timeline, the things that are supposed to happen, he is essentially breaking the loop, and because of that, he's now being split in in in, in you know uh, teleporting through different universes back and forth. And uh, if he gets control of that, that could actually be a useful tool for the multiversal war that we could see later on. And uh, I- I'm really, I'm really, really excited for the future of Marvel. I know things for Marvel have not looked great. Uh, some of the shows haven't been very good. And I can admit that the, the show's Secret Invasion was a complete disappointment. I haven't even really talked about it. I think it's one of the worst Disney Plus shows I've done. Uh, it, it just, it, yeah, I, I don't know. I won't get into that. But uh, 
The Disney Plus shows have not been very good. But Loki has been the saving grace. Loki Season 1, for me, is my favorite Disney Plus show uh, there has been in the MCU. I think it's incredible. And uh, I, I was I rewatch I actually I've rewatched it quite a bit and it it holds up. I think it's I think it's awesome. And most of the original creative team behind season one is not involved in this. They have a completely set of new writers, a new director, uh, and and that that did kind of you know, make me cautious a little bit heading into it. But I I think they remain faithful to the aesthetic and to the things that worked in season one while adding a new feel. And I think the biggest difference I'm noticing is from a cinematography perspective. They're holding a lot of one shots on characters, a lot of medium shots. They're really uh, they're really changing the way they kind of shoot this show. And uh, I think it looked beautiful. Now, what, what happened in season one? What, where do I think this is going? So they're obviously setting up Kang. We know that we have Avengers the Kang Dynasty as the next Avengers film that's going to be coming out in a couple of years. And then we have Secret Wars. And this show is obviously setting up. They're, they're really, our foot is on the gas pedal. We're out of Phase 5. We're, we're now in the thick of Phase, or sorry, we're out of Phase 4. We're in the thick of Phase 5. We're really kind of ramping up the gear, putting the pieces together, and uh, setting everything up. And we see the Kang murals. And uh, I'm I'm just really excited for where this is going. Now, a lot of this could change with everything happening with Jonathan Majors. And I'm not going to get too much into the details of that. But it looks, from at least a court of public opinion, it looks like things are going in his favor. However, we don't know the full story. We probably don't even know half of the story. So we'll have to wait and see how how things from that side turn out. But I, I, I think that it's clear that Marvel is all in on Kang. That is not going to change. Whether they have to recast the character, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm just being honest, sharing my opinion, because uh, that's why you're listening. I don't think they're going to recast Jonathan Majors. But they could, depending on the final outcome of the, of the trial. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see for that. But... They're, they're all in on Kang. Kang is clearly the big bad of this multiverse saga. And uh, it's hard to say where I think the show is heading in terms of a finale. We know that the TVA is going to be heavily involved with Deadpool 3 and with the multiverse saga. Uh, and in fact, one of the, the big leakers, if, if you follow this kind of stuff, one of the, the, the major leakers, the most credible leakers in the leaker community named My Time to Shine Hello... I think it was either her or Daniel RPK. They released a synopsis or, or rather a uh, sort of rundown on what's going to happen in Avengers The Kang Dynasty and Avengers Secret Wars. And apparently what's going to go down is that the 616 Avengers, whoever they'll be, they're going to go up against the Council of Kangs and they're going to lose. Very similar to Infinity War. Then, in Avengers Secret Wars, the TVA are going to pull... They're going to realize that the multiverse is collapsing, incursions are happening left and right, and they're going to take characters and, and superheroes from these dying universes, and they're going to put them all together. They're going to pick they're going to pick pick them apart, almost like a draft. They're going to draft them together from these dying universes. They're going to put them all on one world that's apparently going to be called New Earth. Basically, it's Battle World from the comics, and then there they're going to fight the Council of Kings. 
And there's also been rumors that the Kang that quote-unquote died from Ant-Man Quantumania, we all know that he's going to come back in some capacity, that will end up being the Beyonder variant of Kang, so to speak. And uh, so yeah, to me, that's exciting. I am a fan of the multiverse. I know a lot of people are are exhausted of this. For me, I'm not. I actually think it's it's the aspect of the of the future of the MCU that I'm most excited for. And uh, I just I, I feel a lot different than other people. Like I can agree that the quality has certainly dropped in a lot of the Marvel projects. I can absolutely agree. But I think a lot of that had to do with the pandemic. Had to do uh, had a lot to do with. Uh, Bob Chapek, the old CEO of Disney, mandating that Marvel has to just ramp up content and release, just oversaturate us with, with, with content. Now Bob Iger has made it a priority to scale back, and I think they're even canceling some projects too. I think there's whispers that there was a Vision Quest show that was a, that was going to come out as a spinoff from WandaVision. Apparently that has been canceled. Um, so they're scaling back, they're making it a priority again, like it was in the Infinity Saga, to release fewer projects, give them more time, more energy for better visual effects, which has been a very common complaint that I do agree with, with the late Marvel shows and movies. So it seems like moving forward, we're going to get back to quality MCU, the MCU that we love, that connects everything, that that that, that feeds into that greater story. And there's another thing I've heard with the MCU that, you know, who are the Avengers? You know, we don't even know who they are. And this has been a big complaint for a lot of people. And I I can understand that. But for me, that is one of the things that has me hooked. That's one of the things that has me drawn in. Because I I agree, I don't know who the Avengers are. It's up up in the air at this point. But that, that question is what has me interested. Because we obviously know that eventually, when we get to the Kang Dynasty, we're going to find out who those Avengers are. And there's going to be an explanation, there's going to be a reason for them coming together. And I want to see how that's going to happen. I want to see how that question gets answered. Because it is uncertain, right? Avengers Campus, if you want to call it that, uh, was destroyed in Endgame. So, are they going to build a new one? Are they going to build a new headquarters somewhere? These kind of questions are what have me invested, are what have me hooked. So instead of it being a negative for me, like there, we don't know, or the celestial thing as another example, we don't want, there's a celestial sticking out of the earth from Eternals. You know, they haven't even talked about that. We know that they will. And there's also been rumors that that that's going to be addressed in Captain America, uh, Brave New World. And apparently that's going to be the main conflict is worlds and, 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 and countries and, continents fighting over that resource because apparently that celestial from sticking out of the earth from eternals is going to be the main resource for adamantian and if you don't know what adamantian is it's the metal that's in wolverine's claws so i think we just need to wait i think we need to be a little bit more patient and i think the future i'm a little bit more optimistic i think the future is bright for marvel because i think they've they've Finally, we're, we're in the rear view of the pandemic, we're out of the Chapek era, and I think now we're going to go back to the formula of scaling back, really carefully deciding, do we need this Vision Quest TV show? Do we need this Agatha TV show? You know, Does it really serve a purpose? And I think that's what we're going to get moving forward, so... Yeah, um, I, I I know I haven't really actually talked that much about Loki. There's just not much I can really say, to be honest with you. I love I love the first season. 
I think the first episode was great, and a lot of the uh, content creators, like the big ones that we we all know and love, um, they've all seen like the first four episodes, and they said like it's they're it, it's awesome. So for me, as a as a audience member, like that's 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 all you want to hear. So I'll cover the show as we continue forward. There's just not really a lot for me to talk about. Um, I, at least there's not a lot that I can talk about that hasn't already been said. Like there's a lot of people with theories about. You know, Ki Kwan's character, uh, his name being Ob, meaning Ouroboros. Apparently, that's sort of like the uh, what what the show is all about. Everything with the TVA is an Ouroboros. It's a snake eating its tail. It's just a it's just a you know revolving door. It's it's the loop. It's an ongoing loop. And and people think that the end of people think that we've already seen the ending of this season in the first episode when Loki got pruned and he was about to answer the phone call and open the door to uh, where the timekeepers were, or I guess in this case where Kang was. So, I, you know, I, I could talk about that, and I guess I kind of just did. But, you know, all the creators, new rock stars, everything always, uh, heavy spoilers, they've already gone over that. And I just feel like at that point, I'm just going to be repeating and regurgitating all the things that have already been said and pointed out. So, all I'll say is I love the first episode. I give it a 10 out of 10. And uh, I think it's also a six-episode season. So we'll talk about it again next week. Um, yeah. All right, everybody. I think that's going to wrap up today's episode of Unbashful. It was a very interesting one. And I haven't... I know I've been inconsistent lately with these episodes. I've just been very busy with, you know, acting school and everything like that. So, All right. We're going to end it there. Everybody stay safe. I wish you well. Chaotic things are going on in the world. Just try and try and stay uh, healthy and, and safe. And, and I wish you all well. Okay. I'll see you on the next one. Have a good day.